Volume Eight, Chapter Five of Cecilia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Barony. Cecilia, Memoirs of an Heiress by Francis Burney, Volume Eight, Chapter Five, A Cottage. The evening was already far advanced and before she arrived at the end of her little journey it was quite dark when they came within a mile of mr arnott's house the postillion in turning too suddenly from the turnpike to the cross-road overset the carriage the accident however occasioned no other mischief than delaying their proceeding and cecilia and her maid were helped out of the chaise unhurt the servants assisted by a man who was walking upon the road began lifting it up and cecilia too busy within to be attentive to what passed without, disregarded what went forward, till she heard her footman call for help. She then hastily advanced to inquire what was the matter, and found that the passenger who had lent his aid had by working in the dark unfortunately slipped his foot under one of the wheels, and so much hurt it, that without great pain he could not put it to the ground. Cecilia immediately desired that the sufferer might be carried to his own home in the chaise, while she and the maid walked on to Mr. Arnott's, attended by her servant on horseback. This little incident proved of singular service to her upon first entering the house. Mrs. Harrel was at supper with her brother, and hearing the voice of Cecilia in the hall, hastened with the extremest surprise to inquire what had occasioned so late a visit followed by Mr. Arnott, whose amazement was accompanied with a thousand other sensations too powerful for speech. Cecilia, unprepared with any excuse, instantly related the adventure she had met with on the road, which quieted their curiosity by turning their attention to her personal safety. They ordered a room to be prepared for her, entreated her to go to rest with all speed and postpone any further account till the next day. With this request she most gladly complied. Happy to be spared the embarrassment of inquiry, and rejoiced to be relieved from the fatigue of conversation. Her night was restless and miserable. To know how Delvile would bear her flight was never a moment from her thoughts, and to hear whether he would obey or oppose his mother was her incessant wish. She was fixed, however, to be faithful in refusing to see him and at least to suffer nothing new from her own enterprise or fault. Early in the morning Mrs. Harrel came to see her. She was eager to learn why, after invitations repeatedly refused, she was thus suddenly arrived without any, and she was still more eager to talk of herself, and relate the weary life she led thus shut up in the country and confined to the society of her brother. Cecilia evaded giving any immediate answer to her questions, and Mrs. Harrel, happy in an opportunity to rehearse her own complaints, soon forgot that she had asked any, and in a very short time was perfectly, though imperceptibly, contented to be herself the only subject upon which they conversed. But not such was the selfishness of Mr. Arnott, and Cecilia, when she went down to breakfast, perceived with the utmost concern that he had passed a night as sleepless as her own, 
a visit so sudden so unexpected and so unaccountable from an object that no discouragement could make him think of with indifference had been a subject to him of conjecture and wonder that had revived all the hopes and the fears which had lately though still unextinguished lain dormant the inquiries however which his sister had given up he ventured not to renew and thought himself but too happy in her presence whatever might be the cause of her visit he perceived, however, immediately, the sadness that hung upon her mind, and his own was redoubled by the sight. Mrs. Harrel also saw that she looked ill, but attributed it to the fatigue and fright of the preceding evening, well knowing that a similar accident would have made her ill herself, or fancy that she was so. During breakfast, Cecilia sent for the postillion to inquire of him how the man had fared whose good-natured assistance in their distress had been so unfortunate to himself. He answered that he had turned out to be a day-labourer, who lived about half a mile off, and then, partly to gratify her own humanity, and partly to find any other employment for herself and friends than uninteresting conversation, she proposed that they should all walk to the poor man's habitation, and offer him some amends for the injury he had received. This was readily assented to, and the postillion directed them whither to go. The place was a cottage, situated upon a common. They entered it without ceremony, and found a clean-looking woman at work. Cecilia inquired for her husband, and was told that he was gone out to day-labour. "'I am very glad to hear it,' returned she. "'I hope, then, he has got the better of the accident he met with last night.' "'It was not him, madam,' said the woman, "'met with the accident. "'It was John. "'There he is, working in the garden.' "'To the garden, then, they all went, "'and saw him upon the ground, weeding. "'The moment they approached, he arose, "'and without speaking, began to limp, "'for he could hardly walk, away. "'I am sorry, master,' said Cecilia, "'that you are so much hurt. "'Have you had anything put to your foot?' The man made no answer, but still turned away from her. A glance, however, of his eye, which the next instant he fixed upon the ground, startled her. She moved round to look at him again, and perceived Mr. Belfield. "'Good God!' she exclaimed, but seeing him still retreat, she recollected in a moment how little he would be obliged to her for betraying him, and suffering him to go on, turned back to her party, and led the way again into the house. As soon as the first emotion of her surprise was over, she inquired how long John had belonged to this cottage, and what was his way of life. The woman answered he had only been with them a week, and that he went out to day-labour with her husband. Cecilia then, finding their stay kept him from his employment, and willing to save him the distress of being seen by Mr. Arnott or Mrs. Harrel, proposed their returning home. She grieved most sincerely at beholding in so melancholy an occupation a young man of such talents and abilities. She wished much to assist him, and began considering by what means it might be done, when as they were walking from the cottage, a voice at some distance called out, "'Madam! Miss Beverley!' And looking round, to her utter amazement, she saw Belfield endeavouring to follow her. She instantly stopped, and he advanced his hat in his hand, and his whole air indicating he sought not to be disguised. 
Surprised at this sudden change of behaviour, she then stepped forward to meet him, accompanied by her friends. But when they came up to each other, she checked her desire of speaking, to leave him fully at liberty to make himself known or keep concealed. He bowed, with a look of assumed gaiety and ease, but the deep scarlet that tinged his whole face manifested his internal confusion, and in a voice that attempted to sound lively, though its tremulous accents betrayed uneasiness and distress, he exclaimed with a forced smile, "'Is it possible Miss Beverley can deign to notice a poor miserable day-labourer such as I am? How will she be justified in the Beaumont, when even the sight of such a wretch ought to fill her with horror? Henceforth, let hysterics be blown to the winds, and let nerves be discarded from the female vocabulary, since a lady so young and fair can stand this shock without heart-shorn or fainting.' "'I am happy,' answered Cecilia, "'to find your spirits so good.' Yet my own, I must confess, are not raised by seeing you in this strange situation. My spirits, cried he, with an air of defiance, never were they better, never so good as at this moment. Strange as seems my situation, it is all that I wish. I have found out at last the true secret of happiness, that secret which so long I pursued in vain, but which always eluded my grasp till the instant of despair arrived, when, slackening my pace, I gave it up as a phantom. "'Go from me,' I cried, "'I will be cheated no more. Thou airy bubble, thou fleeting shadow, I will live no longer in thy sight, since thy beams dazzle without warming me. Mankind seems only composed as matter for thy experiments, and I will quit the whole race, that thy delusions may be presented to me no more.' This romantic flight, which startled even Cecilia, though acquainted with his character, gave to Mrs. Harrel and Mr. Arnott the utmost surprise, his appearance and the account they had just heard of him having by no means prepared them for such sentiments or such language. "'Is, then, this great secret of happiness,' said Cecilia, "'nothing at last but total seclusion from the world?' "'No, madam,' answered he, "'it is labour with independence.' Cecilia now wished much to ask some explanation of his affairs, but was doubtful whether he would gratify her before Mrs. Harrel and Mr. Arnott, and hurt to keep him standing, though he leant upon a stick. She told him, therefore, she would at present detain him no longer, but endeavour again to see him before she quitted her friends. Mr. Arnott then interfered, and desired his sister would entreat Miss Beverley to invite whom she pleased to his house. Cecilia thanked him and instantly asked Belfield to call upon her in the afternoon. "'No, madam, no,' cried he. "'I have done with visits and society. I will not so soon break through a system with much difficulty formed, when all my future tranquillity depends upon adhering to it. The worthlessness of mankind has disgusted me with the world, and my resolution in quitting it shall be immovable as its baseness.' "'I must not venture, then,' said Cecilia, "'to inquire. "'Enquire, madam,' interrupted he, with quickness, "'what you please. "'There is nothing I will not answer to you, "'to this lady, to this gentleman, "'to any and to everybody. "'What can I wish to conceal, "'where I have nothing to gain or to lose? "'When first, indeed, I saw you, "'I involuntarily shrunk. "'A weak shame for a moment seized me. "'I felt fallen and debased, "'and I wished to avoid you. 
but a little recollection brought me back to my senses. And where, cried I, is the disgrace of exercising for my subsistence the strength with which I am endued? And why should I blush to lead the life which uncorrupted nature first prescribed to man? Well, then, said Cecilia, more and more interested to hear him, if you will not visit us, will you at least permit us to return with you to some place where you can be seated? I will with pleasure, cried he, go to any place where you may be seated yourselves. But for me, I have ceased to regard accommodation or inconvenience. They then all went back to the cottage, which was now empty, the woman being out at work. "'Will you then, sir,' said Cecilia, "'give me leave to inquire whether Lord Vanelt is acquainted with your retirement, and if it will not much surprise and disappoint him?' "'Lord Vanelt,' cried he haughtily, "'has no right to be surprised. I would have quitted his house if no other, not even this cottage, had a roof to afford me shelter.' "'I am sorry indeed to hear it,' said Cecilia. "'I had hoped he would have known your value, and merited your regard.' "'Ill-usage,' answered he, "'is as hard to relate as to be endured. There is commonly something pitiful in a complaint, and though oppression in a general sense provokes the wrath of mankind, the investigation of its minuter circumstances excites nothing but derision. Those who give the offence by the worthy few may be hated.' but those who receive it by the world at large will be despised. Conscious of this, I disdained making any appeal. Myself the only sufferer, I had a right to be the only judge, and shaking off the base trammels of interest and subjection, I quitted the house in silent indignation, not choosing to remonstrate where I desired not to be reconciled. "'And was there no mode of life,' said Cecilia, "'to adopt?' but living with Lord Vanelt, or giving up the whole world. "'I weighed everything maturely,' answered he, before I made my determination, and I found it so much, the most eligible, that I am certain I can never repent it. I had friends who would with pleasure have presented me to some other nobleman, but my whole heart revolted against leading that kind of life, and I would not, therefore, idly rove from one great man to another, adding ill-will to disgrace, and pursuing hope in defiance of common sense. No, when I quitted Lord Vanelt, I resolved to give up patronage for ever. I retired to private lodgings to deliberate what next could be done. I had lived in many ways. I had been unfortunate or imprudent in all. The law I had tried, but its rudiments were tedious and disgusting. The army, too, but there found my mind more fatigued with indolence than my body with action. General dissipation had then its turn, but the expense to which it led was ruinous, and self-reproach baffled pleasure while I pursued it. I have even—yes, there are few things I have left untried—I have even—for why now disguise it? He stopped, and coloured, but in a quicker voice presently proceeded. Trade also has had its share in my experiments. For that, in truth, I was originally destined. But my education had ill-suited me to such a destination, and the trader's first maxim I reversed, in lavishing when I ought to have accumulated. What then remained for me? To run over again the same irksome round I had not patience, and to attempt anything new I was unqualified. Money I had none. My friends I could bear to burthen no longer. 
A fortnight I lingered in wretched irresolution. A simple accident at the end of it happily settled me. I was walking one morning, in Hyde Park, forming a thousand plans for my future life, but quarrelling with them all, when a gentleman met me on horseback, from whom at my Lord Vanelt's I had received particular civilities. I looked another way not to be seen by him, and the change in my dress since I left his lordship's made me easily pass unnoticed. He had rode on, however, but a few yards, before by some accident or mismanagement he had a fall from his horse. Forgetting all my caution, I flew instantly to his assistance. He was bruised, but not otherwise hurt. I helped him up, and he leant upon my arm. In my haste of inquiring how he had fared, I called him by his name. He knew me, but looked surprised at my appearance. He was speaking to me, however, with kindness, when seeing some gentlemen of his acquaintance galloping up to him, he hastily disengaged himself from me, and instantly beginning to recount to them what had happened, he sedulously looked another way, and joining his new companions, walked off without taking further notice of me. For a moment I was almost tempted to trouble him to come back, but a little recollection told me how ill he deserved my resentment, and bid me transfer it for the future from the pitiful individual to the worthless community. Here finished my deliberation. The disgust to the world, which I had already conceived, this little incident confirmed. I saw it was only made for the great and the rich. Poor, therefore, and lo, what had I to do in it? I determined to quit it for ever, and to end every disappointment by crushing every hope. I wrote to Lord Vanelt to send my trunks to my mother. I wrote to my mother that I was well, and would soon let her hear more. I then paid off my lodgings, and, shaking the dust from my feet, bid a long adieu to London, and, committing my route to chance, stroll on into the country, without knowing or caring which way. My first thought was simply to seek retirement, and to depend for my future repose upon nothing but a total seclusion from society. But my slow method of travelling gave me time for reflection, and reflection soon showed me the error of this notion. Guilt, cried I, may indeed be avoided by solitude. But will misery, will regret, will deep dejection of mind? No, they will follow more assiduously than ever. For what is there to oppose them, where neither business occupies the time, nor hope the imagination? Where the past has nothing left but resentment, and the future only opens to a dismal uninteresting void? No stranger to life. I knew human nature could not exist on such terms. Still less a stranger to books, I respected the voice of wisdom and experience in the first of moralists, and most enlightened of men. Footnote, Dr. Johnson. And reading the letter of Cowley, I saw the vanity and absurdity of panting after solitude. Footnote, Life of Cowley, page 34. I sought not, therefore, a cell. But since I purposed to live for myself, I determined for myself also to think. Civility of imitation has ever been as much my scorn as civility of dependence. I resolved, therefore, to strike out something new, and no more to retire as every other man had retired, than to linger in the world as every other man had lingered. The result of all you now see. I found out this cottage, and took up my abode in it. I am here out of the way of all society 
yet avoid the great evil of retreat, having nothing to do. I am constantly, not capriciously employed, and the exercise which benefits my health imperceptibly raises my spirits in despite of adversity. I am removed from all temptation. I have scarce even the power to do wrong. I have no object for ambition. For repining I have no time. I have found out, I repeat, the true secret of happiness. Labour with independence. He stopped, and Cecilia, who had listened to this narrative with a mixture of compassion, admiration, and censure, was too much struck with its singularity to be readily able to answer it. Her curiosity to hear him had sprung wholly from her desire to assist him, and she had expected from his story to gather some hint upon which her services might be offered. But none had occurred. He professed himself fully satisfied with his situation, and though reason and probability contradicted the profession, she could not venture to dispute it with any delicacy or prudence. She thanked him, therefore, for his relation, with many apologies for the trouble she had given him, and added, "'I must not express my concern for misfortunes which you seem to regard as conducive to your contentment, nor remonstrate at the step you have taken, since you have been led to it by choice, not necessity. But yet, you must pardon me, if I cannot help hoping I shall some time see you happier, according to the common, however vulgar, ideas of the rest of the world.' "'No, never, never! I am sick of mankind! Not from theory, but experience! And the precautions I have taken against mental fatigue will secure me from repentance, or any desire of change. For it is not the active, but the indolent, who weary. It is not the temperate, but the pampered, who are capricious.' "'Is your sister, sir, acquainted with this change in your fortune and opinions?' "'Poor girl, no!' She and her unhappy mother have borne but too long with my enterprises and misfortunes. Even yet they would sacrifice whatever they possess to enable me to play once more the game so often lost. But I will not abuse their affection, nor suffer them again to be slaves to my caprices, nor dupes to their own delusive expectations. I have sent them word I am happy. I have not yet told them how or where. I fear much the affliction of their disappointment and for a while shall conceal from them my situation, which they would fancy was disgraceful, and grieve at as cruel. "'And is it not cruel?' said Cecilia. "'Is labour indeed so sweet? And can you seriously derive happiness from what all others consider as misery?' "'Not sweet,' answered he, "'in itself, but sweet, most sweet, and salutary in its effects. When I work—' I forget all the world, my projects for the future, my disappointments from the past. Mental fatigue is overpowered by personal. I toil till I require rest, and that rest which nature, not luxury, demands, leads not to idle meditation, but to sound, heavy, necessary sleep. I awake the next morning to the same thought-exiling business, work again till my powers are exhausted, and am relieved again at night by the same health-recruiting insensibility. "'And if this,' cried Cecilia, "'is the life of happiness, why have we so many complaints of the sufferings of the poor, and why so eternally do we hear of their hardships and distress?' "'They have known no other life. They are strangers, therefore, to the felicity of their lot. 
had they mingled in the world, fed high their fancy with hope, and looked forward with expectation of enjoyment, had they been courted by the great, and offered with profusion adulation for their abilities, yet, even when starving, been offered nothing else, had they seen an attentive circle wait all its entertainment from their powers, yet found themselves forgotten as soon as out of sight, and perceived themselves avoided when no longer buffoons, oh, had they known and felt provocations such as these, how gladly would their resentful spirits turn from the whole unfeeling race, and how would they respect that noble and manly labour which at once disentangles them from such subjugating snares, and enables them to fly the ingratitude they abhor. Without the contrast of vice, virtue unloved may be lovely, without the experience of misery, happiness is simply a dull privation of evil. "'And are you so content,' cried Cecilia, "'with your present situation, as even to think it offers you reparation for your past sufferings?' "'Content!' repeated he, with energy. "'Oh, more than content! I am proud of my present situation. I glory in showing to the world, glory still more in showing to myself, that those whom I cannot but despise I will not scruple to defy, and that where I have been treated unworthily I will scorn to be obliged.' "'But will you pardon me?' said Cecilia. "'Should I ask again, why, in quitting Lord Vanelt, you concluded no one else worthy a trial. Because it was less my Lord Vanelt, madam, than my own situation that disgusted me. For though I liked not his behaviour, I found him a man too generally esteemed, to flatter myself better usage would await me in merely changing my abode, while my station was the same. I believe, indeed, he never meant to offend me but I was offended the more that he should think me an object to receive indignity without knowing it. To have had this pointed out to him would have been at once mortifying and vain, for delicacy, like taste, can only partially be taught, and will always be superficial and erring where it is not innate. Those wrongs, which though too trifling to resent, are too humiliating to be borne, speech can convey no idea of, the soul must feel, or the understanding can never comprehend them. "'But surely,' said Cecilia, "'though people of refinement are rare, they yet exist. Why then remove yourself from the possibility of meeting with them?' "'Must I run about the nation,' cried he, "'proclaiming my distress and describing my temper, telling the world that though dependent I demand respect as well as assistance, and publishing to mankind that though poor I will accept no gifts if offered with contumely?' Who will listen to such an account? Who will care for my misfortunes, but as they may humble me to his service? Who will hear my mortifications, but to say I deserve them? What has the world to do with my feelings and peculiarities? I know it too well to think calamity will soften it. I need no new lessons to instruct me that to conquer affliction is more wise than to relate it. Unfortunate as you have been, said Cecilia, I cannot wonder at your asperity, but yet it is surely no more than justice to acknowledge that hard-heartedness to distress is by no means the fault of the present times. On the contrary, it is scarce sooner made known than every one is ready to contribute to its relief. And how contribute, cried he, by a paltry donation of money? Yes, the man whose only want is a few guineas may indeed obtain them 
but he who asks kindness and protection, whose oppressed spirit calls for consolation even more than his ruined fortune for repair, how is his struggling soul, if superior to his fate, to brook the ostentation of patronage, and the insolence of condescension? Yes, yes, the world will save the poor beggar who is starving, but the fallen wretch who will not cringe for his support may consume in his own wretchedness without pity and without help. Cecilia now saw that the wound his sensibility had received was too painful for argument, and too recent immediately to be healed. She forbore, therefore, to detain him any longer, but expressing her best wishes, without venturing to hint at her services, she arose, and they all took their leave, Belfield hastening as they went to return to the garden, where, looking over the hedge as they passed, they saw him employed again in weeding with the eagerness of a man who pursues his favourite occupation. Cecilia half forgot her own anxieties and sadness in the concern which she felt for this unfortunate and extraordinary young man. She wished much to devise some means for drawing him from a life of such hardship and obscurity. But what to a man thus jealous in honour, thus scrupulous in delicacy, could she propose, without more risk of offence than probability of obliging? His account had, indeed, convinced her how much he stood in need of assistance, but it had shown her no less how fastidious he would be in receiving it. Nor was she wholly without fear that an earnest solicitude to serve him, his youth, talents, and striking manners considered, might occasion even in himself a misconstruction of her motives, such as she already had given birth to in his forward and partial mother. The present, therefore, all circumstances weighed, seemed no season for her liberality, which she yet resolved to exert the first moment it was unopposed by propriety. End of chapter 5 Recording by Barony